This podcast may contain explicit language. Welcome to the Greatest Movie of All Time podcast, the show that uses a unique grading style to redefine what the greatest movies are. I'm Tom Duncan. And I'm Dana Duncan. We also welcome back our returning celebrity guest scorer, my sister, Allison Techmeyer. Hello, everyone. That's enough of that. Upgrades in the studio since you were here last. I I guess so. Yeah, I now have a, a slight soundboard that I can use. You had a few last time that you were practicing. Hmm. Well, maybe she was just on the newer ones. Anyway, for tonight, for our 171st episode, we discuss the genre-redefining comic book film Batman Begins from 2005, directed and written by Christopher Nolan, Co-written by David S. Goyer, score by Hans Zimmer and James Newton Howard, starring Christian Bale as Bruce Wayne slash Batman, Gus Lewis as young Bruce Wayne, Michael Caine as Alfred Pennyworth, Liam Neeson as Henry Ducard slash Ra's al Ghul, Katie Holmes as Rachel Dawes, Emma Lockhart as young Rachel Dawes, Gary Oldman as James Gordon, Killian Murphy as Dr. Jonathan Crane slash The Scarecrow, Tom Wilkinson as Carmine Falcone, Rutger Hauer as William Earl, Ken Watanabe as Decoy Ra's al Ghul, and Morgan Freeman as Lucius Fox. Recognition for this movie? Batman Begins was released on June 15, 2005 in the United States. Batman Begins ranked at the top in its opening weekend, accumulating $48 million. The film's five-day gross was $72.9 million, beating Batman Forever as the franchise high. Batman Begins also broke the five-day opening record in the 55 IMAX theaters, grossing $3.16 million. Polled moviegoers rated the film with an A, and according to the studio's survey, Batman Begins was considered the best of all the Batman films. It is the fourth-highest-grossing Batman film as of August 2012, behind Tim Burton's original Batman movie from 1989, which grossed $411 million worldwide, and also was surpassed by its two sequels, The Dark Knight and The Dark Knight Rises, both of which have grossed over $1 billion. It was also the number seven grossing film of 2005. The film was met with mostly positive critical praise, particularly for Christopher Nolan and Christian Bale as the title character, including from film director Tim Burton, who had directed the 1989 Batman film and its first sequel. He felt that Nolan captured the real spirit that these kind of movies are supposed to have nowadays. When I did Batman 20 years ago, in 1988 or something, it was a different time in comic book movies. You couldn't go into that dark side of comics yet. The last couple of years, that has become acceptable, and Nolan certainly got more to the root of what Batman comics are about. Batman Begins has been cited as one of the most influential films of the 2000s. On the film's 10th anniversary, Forbes published an article describing its lasting influence, quote, Reboot became part of our modern vocabulary, and superhero origin stories became increasingly in vogue for the entire genre. The phrase dark and gritty 
Likewise, join the cinematic lexicon, influencing our perception of different approaches to storytelling, not only in the comic book film genre, but in all sorts of other genres as well. Sean Adler of MTV stated Batman Begins heralded a trend of darker genre films that either retold backstories or rebooted them altogether. Examples he cited were Casino Royale, as well as the in-development Robocop, Red Sonja, and Grayskull. In 2012, Kevin Feige, film producer and president of Marvel Studios, stated, quote, Chris Nolan's Batman is the greatest thing that happened to superhero films because it bolstered everything. Filmmakers, screenwriters, and producers who have mentioned Batman Begins or the Dark Knight trilogy to describe their projects include John Favreau when talking about Iron Man, Damon Lindelof when describing Star Trek Into Darkness, Robert Downey Jr. describing Sherlock Holmes, Hugh Jackman describing X-Men Origins Wolverine, Matthew Vaughn describing X-Men First Class, Sam Mendes describing Skyfall, Mark Webb describing The Amazing Spider-Man, David Ayer describing Suicide Squad, Brian Cranston describing Power Rangers, <laughs> Patty Jenkins and Matthew Jensen describing Wonder Woman, James Mangold describing Logan, and Todd Phillips describing The Joker. Or just Joker, I suppose. Batman Begins would be nominated for one Academy Award for... Anybody look this up in the research? No. Cinematography for Wally Pfister. It would lose to Memoirs of a Geisha. (laughs) Yeah, okay. Batman Begins currently holds an 84% on Rotten Tomatoes, a 70 score on Metacritic, and a 3.8 out of 5 on Letterboxd. So, as we begin every week, Dad, what is your relationship to this movie? I think this is about the third or fourth time I've watched the entire film. Um, I watched it with you a couple of times at least. That's about it. It's one of the rare films where you were introduced to it through me. Yes. Instead of the other way around. Allison, do you remember seeing this for the first time? So, I know I saw it. A bunch when I was younger. It came out when I was 12, and I know I must have seen it in theaters or right around then. But then when I was watching it, and I've seen it several times since then, because it was actually one of the very first movies my husband and I watched together. Uh, actually, we saw one in theaters, but this was the first one we ever watched together out of theaters. But I couldn't remember watching it, to be honest. We were watching it, and I'm going, I don't remember any of this. So I know I watched it at least half a dozen or more times growing up, but I couldn't remember it. I decided because this is going to be the 15th anniversary of The Dark Knight this year, and that's going to be coming up next week, that I was going to do the entire trilogy all at once as kind of a birthday present to myself. Because the original Batman Begins came out in June, and I waited a couple of weeks, and I went and saw it with Sarah and Alex Gauss. I don't know why he was there with us, but we saw it at the Rapids Rogers Cinema Theaters, and I remember wanting to go to this specifically for my birthday because I, as you all know, was a big Batman fan when I was growing up. I loved the Super Friends comics and the cartoons and used to play football with my action figures. Yes, I, I will self-own that one. And in fact, I still think there is something there where there could be some huge sporting competition between all the villains. I was never allowed to be Batman. I was never allowed to be Batman. Why would you be allowed to be Batman? You're always the sidekick. You said, no, that's not why you said I couldn't be Batman. You said I couldn't be Batman because I was a girl. Well, I stand by that. (laughs) Batman. 
anyway, I always got the stupid heroes. I'm staying out of this. <laughs> I always got the really lame ones. It was always set. It was a rigged game. It's always rigged. Well, you could have been like, uh, what are the the twins? The Wonder Twins. Wonder Twins. Wonder Twin powers activate. Oh God, no, <laughs> no! I will not do Wonder Twins on this program. <laughs> Meanwhile, back at the halls of justice. Apparently, that's Kermit doing Ted Knight. <laughs> yeah, fuck you. Anyway, <laughs> moving on. I did not grow up with the Tim Burton or Joel Schumacher Batmans. They were a little bit ahead of my time. The only one that I would have been about the prime age for was the often maligned, and yes, I will have to do it here soon, Batman and Robin with George Clooney at the end. And in fact, I still have a lot of action figures somewhere from that particular movie. Regardless, this was the first one where it was kind of like for my age group and my generation, and so I could kind of grow up with these. And I remember loving this movie and being excited for the second one. I do have another story for when we get to it next week as to how big that movie became for me, because that that movie specifically influences so much of how I view film and what I came to love about film. So there's there's a whole other discussion for that next week. You very quickly became obsessed with uh, Christopher Nolan. Correct. Over all this. I remember that much. And in fact, I just finished his entire filmography. I saw the last of his films that I had yet to see. His first film from 1998, I got in over the weekend. Which was fantastic, to be quite honest. I actually think it's better than Memento. I know that's a hot take, but oh well. Yeah. So what is this movie actually about, then? Because each one of Christopher Nolan's Batman is kind of about something. And that's why I think these movies have become more elevated than just simply comic book films. Turning tragedy into a cause. He took his own personal pain of losing his parents and converted it into a cause, a movement, an action to try to not only secure justice, but his own healing. And I think that that's a very important part to how you discuss this film. I started looking at it a little bit, and they do kind of get to the origin of Superman in the original 1978 Richard Donner Superman, but it's not something that they do anything other than just kind of gloss over his origin story. They don't use it to fuel the internal character and the motivation in the way that this does. For me, it's about figuring out who you are and what you're meant to do and turning, you know, figuring out life and okay, yes, these events happened and they shaped you and using that to figure out what else you can do with your life and who you can be and who you should be and really discovering life again after all this. Yeah, I think that's definitely one of the major themes and arcs of the movie is grief and working through that for at least some positive good. But I, one of the things that I really took away, at least from this viewing of the film, and I've probably done so 20 to 25 times at this point, is this is a sneaky, like, death penalty movie. I think a lot of what the, the drive of the 
moral arc of the story of Batman, and it gets to a lot of it in the second movie as well, is Batman's moral code, I will not kill. And it's often referred to throughout this movie, you can't do what is necessary to fight evil, to exact true justice. In Ducard or Ra's al Ghul's mind, that is to kill criminals because they do not share compassion. But Batman shows his level of compassion in adopting a moral high ground that he will not cross. Now, again, it's exemplified in a larger sense when the Joker really puts him to the screws in the second movie. But I do think this is actually one of those where it's kind of a sneaky issues film. I like the parts, but I'll talk about this more later, about like where he said, you know, I won't kill you, but I'm not going to save you. Or the it's that good versus evil and figuring out what it means for you to be good or for you in your own mind, your morals and your sense of guidance, which is part of figuring out who you are. It's figuring out where you draw the line and where you will see your own sense of guidance and your own morals and ethics. One of the things that I guess might be missing in other origin stories is developing your own moral code. Yeah. I mean, you don't see Peter Parker struggling with it too much. He's just off having fun. I suppose. But then that character's never really dealt with being against the law, whereas Batman has always been placed, at least in some of the Frank Miller comic books of the late 80s, where he's really dealing with being actually against the police force. I think to some extent... It kind of, this topic blends into the next question you had, which is, what is uh, what about this film is different for you than the other comic book origin films? This really emphasizes that Batman is not a superhero per se. He has the money and resources to have some really cool gadgets and to do things that are superhuman, but it's not based upon some unrealistic point of view. Moreover, what what makes this film different is, is you could pretty much just remove Batman and put any vigilante in, and it would work. I mean, this is a this is a this is the more realistic of all of the superhero films that I've seen, where it's believable that this person would exist. Well, and I think that's been one of the major complaints about a lot of DC characters is that they have these godlike personas, Superman being almost unilaterally all powerful and Wonder Woman being kind of a demigod of sorts. And, you know, all these characters have enormous amounts of gifts beyond what normal human capability are going to be doing. It's not even to the extent where Marvel has at least tapped into a few human-like characters who, at one point or another, just became kind of superhuman. These ones were really gods among men. And I think that's been always a relatability problem. In fact, I think one of the reasons that Batman, comparative to a lot of other superheroes, is relatable is his human side. And I really wish that they would focus more and tap in more to the human side of a lot of these characters. It doesn't have to be in a dark and gritty way. I think that's one of the mistakes that DC got into, but rather tap into what they're dealing with as 
kind of their emotions, what are their motivations a lot more and use that angle. Because I think that's when some of these comic book movies have been much more successful, at least to a broader audience that isn't the fanboy that's going to show up for everything. In general, as an educator, one of the things we're trained in is kids will relate more and enjoy things that they can see themselves in or have some sort of reference to. Which is one of the reasons I always like Batman best is because he was more relatable. He was more human than so many of the other characters. And you're going to find that across the board. It's just common nature. You're going to relate and see more of yourself and be more into something that you can picture yourself being or see that aspect. It's one of the reasons why when you think about Batman in this situation, it's almost equivalent to Bond. So that's why I think it would be interesting if uh, Nolan ever was allowed an opportunity to direct a James Bond film. Well, there has been discussion now that he is basically done with Oppenheimer and he'll be choosing his next film. The only difficulty is, is that he has this deal now with Universal. And I don't know how he would necessarily get out of that in order to do an MGM property. But I know that he's had it on his list forever. I figured he would have crossed it off after doing Tenet, which was his kind of version of a Bond film in a way, even though I don't think it was particularly successful. But he's always spoken how he would love to have done one at some point. And for him to do one, it would probably be the first one in the next era of a a certain Bond character, so an actor playing it. So if he was ever going to do one, now would be the best time. So I'm wondering, because we haven't heard anything in a couple of years now as to an actor choice or a director choice as to where they're going next with the project, what exactly has got that cooking. And maybe after some of the Oppenheimer stuff has died out in the fall, we might start to get some true rumors finally. Well, in the studios in the old days used to trade directors and actors and actresses who were under contract. So it wouldn't be that outrageous to see Universal allow Nolan to do a film or a Bond film for MGM, whereas they're helping to produce as one of, or acting as one of the producers to help defray some of the costs. I suppose, especially since the Bond films in more recent years have been bigger events and cost a lot more. But I suppose we should dive back into a little bit more on Batman. Dad, do you have a plot summary ready for us? I do. In Batman Begins 2005, directed by Christopher Nolan, the origins of the iconic caped crusader are explored with a fresh and gritty perspective. The film follows the journey of Bruce Wayne, a wealthy industrialist haunted by the tragic murder of his parents in Gotham City. Determined to fight crime and bring justice, Bruce embarks on a transformative odyssey to become the legendary vigilante known as Batman. Leaving behind his privileged life, Bruce travels the world and encounters the enigmatic Raz al Ghul and his League of Shadows, a secretive organization dedicated to restoring balance through extreme means. Under the tutelage of the wise and elusive Henry Ducard, Bruce hones his physical and mental prowess, embracing his fears and embracing the symbol of the bat. Returning to Gotham City, now plagued by corruption and crime, Bruce dons the persona of 
Batman, to wage a one-man war against the criminal underworld. With the help of his loyal butler, Alfred Pennyworth, tech genius Lucius Fox, and dedicated police officer Jim Gordon, Batman strives to dismantle the syndicates led by mob boss Carmine Falcone and the sinister Dr. Jonathan Crean, also known as Scarecrow. As Batman delves deeper into his mission, he uncovers a grand scheme orchestrated by Raz al Ghul and the League of Shadows to destroy Gotham City. With the city on the brink of chaos and facing the threat of an apocalyptic weapon, Batman must confront his own fears and confront the demons from his past to save the city he is sworn to protect. Thank you. Did you know? Although Christian Bale performed many of his own stunts, he wasn't allowed anywhere near the Batmobile. Did you know? While shooting on the streets of Chicago, a person accidentally crashed into the Batmobile. The driver was apparently drunk, and he said he hit the car in a state of panic, believing the Dark Knight's vehicle to be an invading alien spacecraft. (laughs) Yeah, okay. Did you know? Christian Bale's active dislike of his uncomfortable Batman outfit helped his performance as the Dark Knight, as he was perpetually in a foul mood when wearing it. And with that, we'll take our first break, and we will be right back. Before we jump back into the episode, next week we are discussing one of my three favorite films, The Dark Knight from 2008, written and directed by Christopher Nolan, co-written by Jonathan Nolan, scored by Hans Zimmer and James Newton Howard, starring Christian Bale, Heath Ledger, Michael Caine, Aaron Eckhart, Maggie Gyllenhaal, Gary Oldman, and Morgan Freeman. You won't want to miss that one, so watch ahead of the show by searching the Real Good app to find where it's streaming for you. That's R-E-E-L-G-O-O-D. Dad, best performer, who did you have? Christopher Nolan. I did as well. Between the writing and the directing, the pace of the film, the um, overall theme of how it was comprised, how it was set, the image, the cinematography, the layout, the camera angles, everything... He set the tone, he set the pace, he set everything. As far as the creation of what this is, it all comes originally from him. Warner's had exhausted itself with somebody else, I can't remember who, as a director for a potential 2003 reboot. This is the first time they had ever done a series reboot of a comic book character. I think the only other major character that had been rebooted had been James Bond and that had been done successfully several times. But to this point, we'd never had a comic book character. So for him to take this undertaking as a relatively unknown director and turn it into one of the biggest cultural sensations of the late 2000s, early 2010s, I think was huge. But every decision from the origin story being the primary thing, him going to bat with the studio, making a demand that, Batman not actually be on screen for over an hour into a Batman film was hugely novel at that point in time. He really had to fight for that. And it worked, at least in my opinion, because he made so much character development before Batman got there. Whether it's the ensemble acting and putting really big, either at the point that they started in this movie or at least later on, Oscar-winning talent in the film is impressive. 
getting a cinematography accreditation or at least a nomination for a comic book film. I mean, there was not a time where you would have said anything of this level of blockbuster or popcorn flick would be artistic and possibly be getting awards attention in this day and era, but he somehow did it. So yes, I think he's by far because he sets the story and the tone and all the creative juice behind this series is him. If you can't give him best performance in this movie, which was more part of him than anybody else, I don't know who else you give it to. Well, I gave it to Christian Bale, so. All right. Well, he's my best secondary. But Christian Bale, without Christian Bale, like he not only just portrayed Batman, but he did the, he was able to transition to a, to show all the suffering that Bruce Wayne went through. And he, he built that character. Yeah, there was writing and all that, but his acting and his emotions and the way he built the character really brought the whole thing to life. It's really nothing against Christian Bale. I agree with that assessment. I know you I just, love you love Christopher. <laughs> well, it has nothing to do with that. It's just to me, what is the overall impact? Christian Bale has it on the title character, but comparative to the amount of things that Christopher Nolan's touching about the film, I just thought his role was a little bit larger in what he was controlling and what he was contributing to the whatever this was, comparative to Bale. But that being said. Bale's probably the best pure actor we've ever had as Batman. I mean, Michael Keaton, no offense, was a comedian at one point, and he's a decent Batman, but like he's not on the acting level of a Christian Bale who is kind of method acty, can really put himself into stuff. I think he's the only one of the Batman actors who has an Oscar. Uh, no, I take that back. I think George Clooney has his Oscar. But obviously, he was in a much different career role when he did Batman and Robin. Yes, it was uh, later that he got his Oscar. And technically, I guess, Ben Affleck also has an Oscar, but it was as the producer of Argo, as opposed to the director, which he probably should have won for that year. But even so, like as far as acting talent, I think he's the best actor to have ever played Batman. Not necessarily, and I'm not going to go there, that he's the best Batman, but... Let's just put it this way. I think Christian Bale is a great actor, but Christian Bale should fall to his knees and thank God the day he met Christopher Nolan. Because I had never seen or heard of Christian Bale until I saw The Prestige, and that uh, film blew my mind when I saw it for the first time. I watched it uh, in a plane flying to Europe and was like, why have I not heard of this film before? This is, like, phenomenal. I couldn't believe how good this film was. And then, of course, it has David Bowie, and I'm like, this is even cool on top of being good. At that point in time, it just launched his career. Now he's Batman. And at this point in time, he's got enough credibility that he can do whatever he wants. And he has done several things that have been absolutely wonderful and have uh, cemented him as one of the consummate actors of his generation. So I do want to clarify for the record that the prestige actually is a year after Batman begins, really? but also directed by Christopher Nolan, of course. Okay. It would have been because we flew to Europe when I was 13 and the Batman came out when I was 12. 
So this would have been 2000 and this, this is 2005. 2005. 2006 was the prestige. Okay. All right. Either way. I mean, he shortly after got the fighter, which I think got him his best supporting actor award in 2008, around the same time as the dark Knight. Every one of these major actors at some point with the exception, maybe being Tom Hanks, because Tom Hanks was just a bankable movie star on his own or Daniel day Lewis. Most major actors have at least one franchise that they were a part of. Or they were tied to a director who was able to utilize them appropriately. Well, I'm meaning more like modern actors as opposed to like Harry Grant or James Stewart. Well, for that matter, uh, Billy Wilder and Jack Lemmon. Sure. Anyway, for my secondary performance, I had Michael Caine because I think he did a fantastic job as Alfred and made you laugh at parts, but also made you feel like he made you connected to Bruce Wayne in ways. And he just like the way he finagled that it just, I thought that was very well done. It's one of the areas that I think these movies improve upon the original run of four with Schumacher and Burton. No offense to Michael Goh, who I thought was fine. That Alfred version seems more like the Adam West uh, Alfred version, the kindly old man who stands in the corner and then gets you your water and Pepto-Bismol or whatever. You know, it, he was never somebody that that was an equal partner or was really active in the world. Whereas I think the modern version of Alfred is much more involved. He was a special forces guy in the military. He helped train Bruce. He's much more of a father figure. He has lessons to give him. I think that Michael Caine kind of started us into that being the more popular version of the character. And I'd love to see how that's expanded upon as we've told other tales within the Batman universe. Except that you're forgetting or missing one point, which is the Nolan version of Alfred, he's the conscience of the film. He's the one who constantly is bringing Bruce back to reality of what is important, what is necessary, what morals and what society expects and what he should be doing versus what he wants to do. And he's constantly making comments, bringing Bruce into thought as to what he is doing and, and bring, triggering his introspection of himself throughout the film. That's an excellent point, because I think he has an even more expanded version of that in The Dark Knight, where he plays a critical role to that exactly what you're talking about. But we'll get to that next week. Most charismatic, I had Morgan Freeman. Lucius Fox was not a primary character of the Batman ethos until these movies. But when you put God as the tech genius that eventually becomes the CEO of Wayne Enterprises, all of a sudden that character explodes and he's in every iteration of Batman. And I love it. I'm here for all of it. How old is Morgan now? I think he's 80 or 81. He might be. I mean, he's he's getting up there. I know. That'll be a sad day. Well, we already have to celebrate somebody else, a titan yeah, who I know. passed away. Who, actually, I guess Morgan Freeman's only three years younger than uh, he's who we're going to have to memorial. Yeah, he's 86. Wow. Yeah. He looks good for 86. Oh, yeah. 
my most charismatic is Killian Murphy. I just think he was such a just absolutely wonderful villain because he would be able to seem respectable and professional and then boom, he's completely over the top. You know, I thought about Michael Caine. I thought about Morgan Freeman. I even thought about Tom Wilkinson. And then I'm like, but of all those, he or Murphy is by far the one that I think has the most impact and made the most impression on me. With his big movie coming up here in a couple of weeks with Oppenheimer, another Christopher Nolan team up. And actually, the casting is pretty darn good. He's not that far off from Robert Oppenheimer, although Oppenheimer was probably a little thinner. I saw a story today that apparently the offices of Oppenheimer and Einstein, when they were at Princeton after the war, they have preserved Einstein's office almost completely. But they had since redone Oppenheimer's office. So Nolan actually got permission and some finagling with actually using Einstein's office as it looked for the filming, for scenes at Princeton, which I think is awesome. Loppenheimer got so mistreated and then lost all of his top-secret clearance and everything else. It'll be interesting to see, but how far they go post-Manhattan Project and what really is a tragic figure that was Robert Oppenheimer in the latter part of his life. Well, and I think there will be a blurb after the film of how he has been now cleared by the U.S. government of any wrongdoing and uh, reobtained his secret clearance, even though he's been dead for a long time. Well, I just remember, and we'll talk about that, I'm sure, at some point in time, but I just remembered with Oppenheimer, I had a history teacher who told a story about his um, uncle or great-grandfather is driving along, and he's on a remote area of New Mexico. He was a truck driver, and a guy's hitchhiking. and looks like an old bum. He asks him, he can, or so he stops, pulls over, picks him up, says, I just need to get into town so I can get some groceries. Drives him in, and then uh, drops him off, and it's like a couple of days later. There's a piece in one of the newspapers about the uh, McCarthy hearings and such, and they were removing the clearance of Oppenheimer. He's going, oh, oh crap, that, uh, that's the guy I picked up that was the hitchhiker. Most charismatic for you, Allison? Michael Caine. He's just like this lovable guy that you just want to give a hug to, and he just he makes you laugh, but then he'll make you like really think, and then he'll make you... Like, he's just kind of all over the place and how his character is. And it's, I liked that. And it, every time you saw him, you just, you know, we were drawn in. Best scene, I have these nominees. Prison fight. Then the training montage, where he's with Ducard. I have Joe Chill, which is the flashback to the trial of his parents' killer. I have Becoming Batman, which is kind of an extended sequence where He's kind of donning the cape. He's finding the stuff in the bat cave, all the, that piece up until the point where he's actually got to go to his first fight, which I also have. So the first fight at the docks. Then I have Arkham Asylum. I have the rooftop chase with the Batmobile 
flying across rooftops. I have the birthday party. I have fear toxin. I have the monorail showdown. And then I have the epilogue. I think I've covered basically the entire film. So if you have something that I missed, speak up now. How did you uh, incorporate the Arkham Asylum montage or series within that parameter that you've outlined? Well, I basically went from about the point where she shows up to interview Tom Wilkinson's Falcone character up through the point where he drives off in the Batmobile and then starts the chase. Basically from that point to that point, because there's a lot in there. There's the drugs, there's the fight that he has with the cops, there's the sonar that he does with the bats, all of that stuff. Allison, you had something? Well, I have when Batman meets Scarecrow, but also at the end, Rachel's decision. And then I liked the part when Bruce Wayne owns, like, he had, he reveals that he bought all the shares of Wayne Enterprises, and then he puts Morgan Freeman in charge. And then I really liked the car chase. Who doesn't like a good car chase while he's trying to save Rachel and he's racing through the streets? I basically count the Wayne Enterprises board takeover the uh, destruction of Wayne Manor climbing through the wreckage. And then that final moment with Gordon in the, or on top of the Gotham police department, all is one thing in the epilogue, quote unquote. I mean, yeah, it's three separate scenes, but okay. Yeah. Common theme. For me, the best scene is probably the Joe chill scene. One of the things that annoyed me the most about the original Tim Burton Batman is trying to shoehorn the Joker into being the killer of Bruce Wayne's parents because I think it creates this unnecessary gravitas to a villain that needed no extra buildup who had already been the primary villain of the entire Batman ethos and gave him this extra power over Batman that I don't think he needed. I think the story is much more powerful when somebody who is in a desperate strait, an average Joe, a quote-unquote Joe Chill, is the killer because it could have been anybody. It's just some vagrant on the street who is desperate for their next meal. And I think creating that is important to bringing out the true character of Batman, that it's not just the supervillains that creates Batman, It's him trying to fight all crime, trying to better his city, trying to live up to the legacy of his parents. And so I thought that was important to reestablish that as the the true origin of the character by comparison to what had been done previously. Either of you, best scene? I don't know. I guess for me, destroying the League of Shadows because it showed so much of where the story was going when he makes his decision that he's not going to kill the guy and he he's like I'm going to continue on and then he tries to save well who well he didn't know that he was Ra's al Ghul but like he saves him and he tries to help him and I think that really sets the stage for so much more in the movie and just really helps to develop the character for me it's the Arkham Asylum it's the whole Rachel interviewing, she getting poisoned, uh, dealing with the Scarecrow, Batman getting poisoned. I think to me, that's the pivot of the film. It's the point where all the setup starts to pay dividends and it becomes a true action film from that point. 
And so to me, that just says so much about the way the movie is going to go. And it really establishes the foundation for the sequels and what they are going to show, how they're going to be engineered, and how they're going to be portrayed. Favorite scene for me is the Becoming Batman montage, whether it's him kind of donning the cape and cowl or holding Jim Gordon at Stapler Point or uh, diving off of rooftop so he needs to develop a cape or getting the battering for the first time. I'm never not going to be interested in that. You could probably do that on a loop for me and I'd be hook, line, and sinker. For me, it's when Batman reveals himself to Rachel and I... I'm a romantic, so, like, I like that scene, and I'm all about the going for that. But, like, when she's down on the ground, and she goes and saves the kid, and and he keeps saying, Batman's gonna come, Batman's gonna come, and she doesn't believe it, and then he shows up, and he whisks him away, and then she says, well, you're gonna, you might die, and I might never see you again, who are you? And then he repeats back the line about, so, the, uh... Oh, what's that line where it's not who I am underneath. It's what I do. That defines me. Thank you. And she goes, Bruce. And then he just, he's gone. And I like that. I think it's, yeah. Good to know that has some sex appeal. Didn't say it had sex appeal. I just think it's Mm -hmm. romantic and cute. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. Why would it have sex appeal? Uh, For me, it's the, the uh, last montage, which the, the, um, Uh, just, well, you know, it's kind of complicated, Bruce's response, because he kind of got dissed as being, this is too much for you to understand earlier in the film. And to me, that's just the kind of the one-uppance. And um, it just, uh, I, I always like scenes in movies where somebody is not really appreciated or is under is underestimated and so um so those scenes always are my favorites well i also have the epilogue but it's more for a particular moment as my most indelible moment and that's when they show the joker card because it was three years of waiting there's going to be a new joker and you knew where they were going next And you knew there was going to be a sequel and that it was going to be a big deal. We just didn't know how much. Yes, and we knew it wasn't going to be Cesar Romero. That's correct. Although that would have been interesting. This is about the point where Jack Nicholson basically retired from acting, too. So it wasn't likely to be him either. I guess my most indelible is when Batman jumps off the roof after saving Rachel to go save Gotham and you can really, this is okay, this is the real climax. This is where everything's going to come and he's going to find some way to destroy or to save Gotham. And then he goes and he finds Ra's al Ghul and he, he doesn't kill him. He doesn't even destroy the train. He, he got Gordon to go and, you know, destroy the supports. And he's like, I'm not going to kill you, but I'm not saving you. And like that part is just like, okay, so he's still got his sense of morals, but he's still saving the city and he's doing all this. And so I like that scene. Let me just ask this because the thought crossed my mind when that scene came up as a gamer, 
where all of you gamers just like, yeah, because you could just see yourself with a controller trying to blow up the supports. Uh, yeah, probably at one point or another. I mean, I've seen the film so much that it's it's hard for that to be a thing. But yeah, I could buy that. I just kept thinking, wow, he needs to get better aim. <laughs> Because it took him so many tries to do it. He needs to know whether you use an X or an O or a box. I, I Don't ask me. <laughs> Depends on which machine you're on. You're describing a PlayStation controller. I'm going to say, that's not an Xbox. I have very little experience. I know. Most indelible for you? For me, it's, again, the Arkham Asylum scenes. Because they're just... When I think of that, I just think of the whole, the psychedelic medication and the bizarre things they were perceiving and all of that. And seeing uh, Tom Wilkinson's character just absolutely go nuts. And yeah. All right. Well, that sounds like a good spot to take our second break. We'll be right back. Releasing in the early part of this July... Adam Hitchcock of the Streaming Circuit Podcast and I are back with our special series on the Marvel Cinematic Universe, where we will be discussing each film from the original Iron Man up through Avengers Endgame. The first half of each show will be on his feed, and the second half we will apply the Stan Lee rubric to each film to determine the greatest Marvel film of all time. This month we're covering the Phase 1 bridge film Iron Man 2 from 2010. Don't miss out, make sure you are subscribed to both feeds to get these episodes. Dad, do we have anyone to remember this week? Yes. Lawrence Terman, 96. He was an American film producer. He did The Graduate, The Thing, and The River Wild. Technically was a Oscar nominee for The Graduate as the primary producer for it. And then uh, Alan Arkin, 89, American actor. Little Miss Sunshine, Argo, The Heart is Lonely, Catch-22, which is the first time I ever saw him as an actor. Oscar winner in 2006. Yes, the best supporting actor in Little Miss Sunshine. That was kind of on his comeback tour in his second career, if you will. And he'd been Emmy-nominated. He'd been obviously an Oscar winner. I mean, an absolute American treasure. I was really sad that he wasn't able to be on the last season of The Kaminsky Method. I'm going to guess because he had gotten sick because we really haven't seen him since the second season of that, but he'd been in Argo. I mean, he's just a memorable character actor from about a a good 10 year period from when he came back with little Miss Sunshine in a way until, you know, he kind of stopped having to act in the last five or so years. And it's just, it, it was one of those that I came up and I felt I had to be the one to break the news to you. Yeah, I know. And it took me a minute because like I said, Again, I'm reaching a point where these people are actors that I really enjoyed and respected and had a lot to do with. This one bothered me. Losing Carl Reiner bothered me. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm just at that age where these titans that I grew up with are uh, passing, and it's a sad moment for me. And if you have not seen Catch-22... It is worth watching. Alan Arkin is in it. Bob Newhart is in it. Art Garfunkel is in it. You're dating yourself a little bit here, Pop. It's uh, Jack Guilford. 
it's an interesting film to watch, uh, especially if you've uh, never read the book. Book's better, but still, movie's pretty good. Well, I know that you commemorated Mel Brooks last week for his birthday, but between Mel Brooks or Francis Ford Coppola or any of the major directors of the 70s, any of the major actors, Redford, De Niro, Pacino, Eastwood, Bob Newhart. We're just going to end up losing a lot of these guys here in short order. And I would say, you know, it's going to be... We're not really killing Dad off. Now we're killing off people we don't even know. We're not killing them off. We're trying to commemorate. They're not dead yet. (laughs) Well, some of them are retired. Okay. We're just saying we're going to be sad for all of the work that they've produced and the lasting memories that they've given us for some of the great works of film. Because we don't have such a closely knit relationship with a lot of actors anymore. Or directors, for that matter. I mean, maybe directors a little bit more than we did actors, but is there anybody outside of maybe Brad Pitt, Matt Damon, Clooney, that you could really say that is of this generation that you feel a close relationship to because of the amount of times you've seen them on screen in the way that you would with De Niro or Pacino, Eastwood, Redford, uh, Hackman, Hoffman, you know, etc.? Uh, Mr. Mint Mobile. Ryan Reynolds, really? Yeah. But is that for on screen or so much as his online persona? Something about him when he does a film or when he is doing an interview, there's just something about him. I mean, it's just like he'd be the kind of guy that I feel like I could just go up and have a conversation with and say, hey, you want to grab a beer? And he would be disinclined to say, sure. And just sit down and just shoot the breeze with you about something that has absolutely nothing to do with anything. I suppose for me, Hugh Jackman would kind of fall into that category. But he's kind of of that same online persona, Twitter feud type, especially with Ryan Reynolds over the last 10 years or so. And he's been on screen in a lot of things that I've enjoyed, but I enjoy his almost off-screen persona more. So I think there is a little bit to being let in on who they are as people outside of that that has something to do with it. Yeah. But anyway, we commemorate our two fallen titans with a moment of silence here in their honor. Thank you. Let's move to best lines. Bruce Wayne, it's not who I am underneath, but what I do that defines me. I won't kill you, but I don't have to save you. Batman. Bruce Wayne. Should I just bury the past out there with my parents? Alfred? Alfred. I wouldn't presume to tell you what to do with your past, sir. Just know that there are those of us who care about you and what you do with your future. Thomas Wayne. And why do we fall, Bruce? So we can learn to pick ourselves up. Bats frighten me, and it's time my enemies share my dread. Batman slash Bruce Wayne. Ducard, death does not wait for you to be ready. Death is not considerate or fair. And make no mistake, here you face death. Bruce Wayne, you're vigilantes. Ducard, no, no, no. A vigilante is just a man lost in the scramble for his own gratification. He can be destroyed or locked up. 
But if you make yourself more than just a man, if you devote yourself to an ideal, and if they can't stop you, then you become something else entirely, which is legend, Mr. Wayne. I seek the means to fight injustice to turn fear against those who prey on the fearful. Bruce Wayne. I'm out. Ducard. Your compassion is a weakness your enemies will not share. Wayne. That's why it's so important. It separates us from them. Well, a guy who dresses up like a bat clearly has issues. Bruce Wayne. Ra's al Ghul. When a forest grows too wild, a purging fire is inevitable and natural. The Wayne legacy is more than bricks and mortar, sir. Alfred. Ducard, you traveled the world. Now you must journey inward to what you really fear. It's inside you. There is no turning back. Your parents' death was not your fault. Your training is nothing. The will is everything. If you make yourself more than just a man, if you devote yourself to an ideal, you become something else entirely. Are you ready to begin? Do you have another one? Nope, I'm out. All right. My last one. Gordon, I never said thank you. Batman. And you'll never have to. Might be my favorite moment in the entire movie. All right, let's move to the Stanley rubric. Legacy well, what about is the up- funniest line? My favorite funniest line was, does it come in black? <laughs> I loved that one. We haven't really separated funniest lines in a long time. We just kind of jumbled them all together. Yeah, because it's really hard to come up with funny lines in some of these films. I know, this one was hard too, but that one made me laugh. I was like, he's driving the vehicle and he turns and he says, well, what do you think? And he goes, does it come in black? Well, how about, nice car, man. You should see my other one. Well, or the other one where he's talking to Alfred and Alfred, um, and he Alfred is saying something like, I assume you're creating this mask to protect those you're close to, and... Bruce then says, yeah, I was thinking about Rachel. And Alfred goes, well, I was thinking about me. <laughs> it's like, yeah. All right. If you're ready now, we'll go to the yes. Stanley yes. rubric. Yes, please. All right. Legacy is up first. I really don't know if I can entertain anything but a five in the industry. It creates an entire system of business upon which all superhero films afterward basically become. You have the recasting and the reboot, which we've now done multiple times with Spider-Man, and we've done multiple times with Superman since this, and all the other films that come with it. The origin stories that basically propped up all of Marvel for over 10 years and made them billions upon billions of dollars. I really don't think it's much to argue. It's on the audience side of this. I think the audience will be much stronger when you talk about The Dark Knight because there's more iconic piercing through pop culture moments and themes and actors and performances in that film. This one I had only as a 3.5 because... Tom, Tom, Tom. I didn't want to be overly favorable to a film that I have a great affinity for. No, the public is a five because this film built momentum. You have to look at it not within the short term. And when I get to impact, I'm going to reduce public for impact within the first two years because that's what happened. But what this did was it started a snowball trend towards the superhero films and the comic book films. And it became 
just overwhelming. It just completely dominated films and movie production for a decade. So it's a 10. And this is from a guy who is not a comic book movie fan. See, I wanted to balance it out because I have a feeling that next week's movie is probably closer to what I would define as a perfect 10. Because that was one of the biggest movies, and it still has a lasting impact on moviegoers of a huge range of people. The iconic performance of the Joker from that is something that almost every other Joker is now measured against. So it's hard for me to say with a straight face that we can have two perfect tens like that in Legacy. You're almost going back to what I would eventually deem as the first two Star Wars films. If you're if you're really serious, that it's a perfect ten. But you have to give it a perfect ten simply because of it influencing an entire decade. Okay, and again, I repeat, I am coming at this as somebody who is not a comic book film fan. This became the cornerstone for a decade of multi-movie studio profits, production, video, uh, computer games, etc. This became the beginning of an absolute dynasty. And I agree with the five for Legacy for Industry. But when you look at the questions you guys put on your list here, like, is it still referenced in pop culture or talked about? Is it still part of culture? Yes and no. Like, yeah, superhero, what it created because of the industry legacy, yes. But, like, I don't remember watching it ever. Like, I know I watched it many, many times, but I don't remember it at all. And I know a lot of other people don't either. But when you talk about this trilogy, I remember Dark Knight. Like, I still remember all the scenes. I remember all of that stuff vividly, even though, like, it's late. Like, I just, I think you got to think about, just based on the questions you guys have listed on your list, I give it a three for people. See, I think what Dad's argument is trying to boil down to is, is that it's not just that it's Batman or it's the Dark Knight trilogy or anything else. This thing kicks off basically the entire modern era of superhero tentpole filmmaking, where everything is sold out and everything's an origin story. I mean, if you're really crediting that James Bond kind of resets itself in the mold of the Christopher Nolan Batmans, or that you have this new series of X-Men films, or the Marvel Cinematic Universe, the biggest thing on the planet as far as a franchise series and the movies that blot out the sun whenever they came out for at least a good 12-year stretch. If we're talking in those regards, that all of those films have traced some level of, are on somewhat of the backing of, then I can buy how it has influence. But I'm just saying that it's not just this film, it's all three films in their totality. And The Dark Knight, I think, excels past what this movie does. Comparative to how people talk about the trilogy, Batman Begins is kind of the forgotten film. Everybody talks as the Dark Knight being the best, and then they rag on Dark Knight Rises as being kind of the worst of the three. Dark or Batman Begins is kind of like the middle child. Middle children aren't so bad. I didn't say they were bad. I just said they were forgotten. That is, well, no comment. Except when uh, they irk their mother. My mother irks me. Well, good thing she doesn't listen to this. 
<laughs> she knows it, so. All right, so I'm going to adjust mine to a four. That way this is going to be really easy math. What is the math? Well, my score will be a nine. Allison's is an eight. So then it'll be a nine average between the three of us. Wow. Way to make it easy on yourself. I know. Kind of fun to play with it that way. Yeah. All right. So impact significance, you said you came down a bit, Dad. Yes. For the industry, it started it, I don't think within the short term, it really understood exactly what was going on. So I went with a four for the industry. And I went for the public because, yeah, it did really well. But I think this really got legs on things like HBO and and Showtime and such leading into The Dark Knight. Because when The Dark Knight came out, I think a lot of people went back if they had not seen this and watched it later and it picked up within that time frame. So within the first two years, I have to go with a 3.5 for the public because I don't think it had nearly the buzz. It wasn't like, you know, you saw it and I kind of, you know, whatever. But I don't think I realized how big it had become until The Dark Knight came out. You know, obviously not being of this younger culture and whatever. So I went with a 4 to 3.5 because within that first two years, I don't think it has much influence. I'm at a 7.5. Again, the categories for the first five years, but I do also give it credit for the fact that uh, I'll liken it to the analogy of the loosening of the jar. Batman Begins starts the process of loosening the jar. Dark Knight was what pops it wide open. I can see that. I had a four and a four. I think from an industry standpoint, Dark Knight is what really drove home the concept and really drove what they wanted to do with comic book films. Because, I mean, we already had Spider-Man, we had the X-Men films, and those had already done some good business. I mean, Spider-Man was the number one grossing film for a while, and, I mean, it was huge for a couple of years. The X-Men films did pretty well alternatively, but they didn't have the genre-redefining, culture-piercing attitude of something like The Dark Knight when that came out. That thing touched everybody that I knew. And so I I just think that you you can't, from an impact insignificance, have the same cultural touchstone we're going to give next week's movie in comparison. So I'm at an eight. I also did a four and a four just because it was such a bit over the five year period and i mean it it spawned other movies like the dark knight rises and or the dark knight and the dark knight rises and all that but also like as a child who grew up with these coming out it was a big thing it was a big deal and it really was what started getting people reinterested in superheroes and leading on to so much more so i gave it a four and a four so the average between the three of us is a 7.83 novelty I gave it a nine. This really redefines the comic book era in one of two ways. We already talked about how the origin story kind of takes off and we get that sense of a tone and that's kind of the path that Marvel took. And then we have the dark and gritty, which we delved more into realistic and crime filled themes and stuff that dealt a little bit closer to life. 
and that's kind of the legacy of at least the first two movies of the Nolan series, which I think is why people don't resonate as much with the third film. But that's for a couple of weeks from now. Even so, that's the path that the DC Extended Universe took to lesser results. And so I do think that between those two aspects and how most superhero culture or superhero tentpole filmmaking draws itself back to the success of this original film and the way that it reclaimed the Batman narrative and completely redid all of the Burton Schumacher mess. I have to give this a nine. I am not going to go full 10 because I think there are ways that the dark Knight expanded upon it and thus has a certain level of execution that's higher and so, again, I'm kind of comparing the two against each other, which is why I wanted to do them all three back to back to back. But I have a nine here. I went with an eight because it did push a lot of the boundaries. It did change things that changed how movies were developed and how they were done. I mean, it brought in that whole different backstory and more. I mean, it really developed the characters and created a whole new level of that that you'll see later in movies like the Marvel movies and stuff like that. So I thought it really made a difference in that. It's aged well. It's I just thought overall it did a really good job of changing things and opening up a new area. The genre was already there, but it opened it up in a new way to bring in further development of the comic books for everything that we've seen since then. So what's your score? I'm vastly different. I had to stop and think. I mean, this is the fourth Batman film of my lifetime. I grew up watching the TV show. Actually, sixth. Sixth? Sixth Batman film. So there was technically a Adam West West Batman movie. There were four original ones, two with Keaton, one with Kilmer, one with Clooney. This would be the sixth of your lifetime. All right. Anyway, so I can't give it novelty in that. So if I'm just going on that, it would be a five, if not just a four. What I'm going to give it novelty to is how it redefined Batman and how it portrayed it. So I'm going to give it points up for that, but I can not go any higher than a seven on novelty because of just the fact that this is just a... um, a revamp of an existing franchise. In fact, I'll even raise it just slightly, and I'll go with a 7.5, because Nolan really did a great job of redefining the franchise. So that's an 8.17 between the three of us. Classicness, I'll hand it over to you, Pop. All right, well, I'm I'm around 7, and that's kind of where I look at it, and I start with that point. We have a pretty strong female lead in here, but we have two African-Americans in the entire film. One's the commissioner who's inept, and the other is Morgan Freeman as Fox, who's absolutely wonderful, but Asian-Americans are not portrayed. Uh, Hispanics are not portrayed. It's just, this is supposed to be an urban village, and it just seems rather a little lily-white to me. I went with a 7.5 for classicness because um, I would have liked to have seen a little bit more diversity involved. The only Asian Americans were, I take that back, the Asian Americans were in the uh, initial scenes with him fighting, you know, the uh, 
karate, kung fu, or however you want to call it, scenes with Ra's al Ghul early in the film. But uh, other than that, I don't know. So I, I would have liked to have seen a little bit more diversity of cast. Even the, the boardroom. You look at the boardroom. I'm like, wow, I know that this kind of reflects a corporate America, but most corporations even to, at that point were trying to develop some level of diversity within their corporate structure. I'm not sure that's entirely true. I mean, this is 18 years ago. It's not 10 years yeah, ago. Yeah, no, I... It was a little more common than what you think. Well, they've had struggles even to now, so I, I don't know if that's... Well, anyway. as we talk, affirmative action is dead, so... The big part for me, as far as aging poorly, is how much does organized crime still resonate with the public? I think one of the things that this movie gets right about the original origins is, is that Despite the presence of some of the ridiculous villains of the time, the Joker, the Penguin, and several other major villains from the late 30s, early 40s were all fairly common criminals that were henchmen or other associated people with organized crime. Like, I want to say the Penguin was like an underboss for a particular crime family. And so Batman's pursuit of justice was against the Maroni and the Falcone crime family. And they took a much bigger role in the Batman ethos early on. Now, I don't mind that they went back to it, and it becomes kind of the basis by which the films are grounded in at least Batman Begins and The Dark Knight. But I just don't know, post-1990s, how much anybody thinks about organized crime, at least in the way that we used to. If you're thinking about organized crime, it might be the cartel, and that has a different connotation with it as far as the drug trade and such, but that's not what they're talking about in this family. It's specifically Italian mob families. They got gangs as well as cartels, but yes. But yeah, but that's different people. It's different associations. I just don't know if that has the same presence or importance in American life that it it makes this film age well. But everything else about the story crafting, the tone, the way the film looked, became the template for later films of the genre, for better or worse. I mean, I mentioned before, the two paths of the two major film franchises, the DC Extended Universe and the MCU, took different lessons from these films and used them, one, to great success, and the other, not so much. As far as classicness, I mean, this has kind of redefined an entire era. I can't give it up to a full 10, but I would possibly be willing to go to a 9 for the level of execution and the creativity and the rest of it. And I know some of that might be leaking into novelty. The one thing I will say is, is I do have to give a half point down for the recasting of Katie Holmes for The Dark Knight. So I'm going to go with an 8.5. I guess I was a little harsh on it and went with a 6 because, I don't know, it's just like, it doesn't, for me, have the same level as the other movies in the trilogy. It's more like, okay, it's there. It doesn't really make... I mean, you still feel something for it, but you don't have that same intense feeling you do every time as you do with the other movies. And, I don't know, it just seemed, in some parts, rather bland. Like, I was saying with, like, characters or some of the development of some of those areas where it's just like, okay... 
it's still good. It's just not as you would see. Like, if they made it today, it would be very different. And I think that definitely changes things a little bit. So, yeah, I, I gave it a six. I just don't think it's, like, it's a good movie and people will still watch it. I just don't think it's exactly where we would hope it would be in today's market, necessarily. Rewatchability. Let's let Allison go first. Well, I also was a six on that one because I didn't even remember watching it. <laughs> like, and I'd seen it so many times. So, I mean, I guess in that sense, it's good because then you can rewatch it and you don't remember anything about it. But it's like, I hadn't gone back to see it. My husband and I have been together now for over eight years and we watched it like when we first started dating. So I hadn't seen it in eight years. So I don't think it's exactly like the movie I'm going to go out and just grab off the shelf. Like, hey, let's watch this. There's a lot of other things I would watch first. Well, this created a unique situation for me because it's a film. Seven is usually my, I should watch or I like to watch it periodically. If it's on, I won't necessarily turn it off type of deal. Normally on a superhero film, we're probably talking a five and a half to a five for me because it's not something I'm going to migrate to. But having watched it again, I realized how good a film this really is in and of itself. So I'm going to go right up to the cusp of this is something that I should regularly put on. So I'll go with a 6.5. That's fine. I will rescue the category because, come on, you didn't expect me to go a 9.5 on this. I can't go full 10 because I got to reserve that for next week. But... It's a 9.5. If we're applying the Kieran B test, this is something I actively have put on. Not all the time. It's not like a go-to. I'm going to put this on whenever I want to. But And if it's on, I will leave it on, no matter what. So it is a 9.5. By the way, the last category was a 7.33 average between the three of us. This category is also a 7.33 average between the three of us. For audience score, we had an 84% for Google users, and we had a 94% for Rotten Tomato users, giving us an 8.9. So to recap the categories, we had a 9 for Legacy, a 7.83 for Impact Significance, an 8.17 for Novelty, a 7.33 for Classicness, a 7.33 for Rewatchability, and an 8.9 for audience score, giving us a final total of... And that would place it between Guess Who's Coming to Dinner and Sunset Boulevard. Okay. So, yeah. Interesting bedfellows. Again, if you disagree with any of our rankings or our uh, grading on any of these movies, you can email us at greatestalltimemoviepodcast at gmail.com. That's greatestalltimemoviepodcast at gmail.com. You can also get a hold of us on the website, ronnieduncanstudios.com slash podcast or one of our social feeds at podcast on either TikTok, Instagram, or Twitter, as long as Twitter still survives. <laughs> yeah. You are muted, Boomer. All right, so that takes us to remaining questions. I don't really have many. I've watched this film so many times, most of my questions are answered by rewatching the film because this is very tight as it pertains to uh, the the overall story. Nolan did a good job of closing the loop on a lot of things, especially because he had two other movies to work with. But I guess 
one might be, if I'm going to nitpick a little, why would Ducard put Wayne in charge of a Legion if he was only the newest recruit? Which is kind of answered by the fact that, you know, you're Gotham's favored son, you should be the one leading our Legion, you'd be ideally placed to uproot Gotham from the inside. But it still feels a little far-fetched that... No. No, simply because of that, which is the one that's got the most talent automatically uh, in those situations is the one who... In what military operation does meritocracy mean anything? Well, he did say that he was also his best recruit. He said he was his best student, his best pupil, and that will automatically get rewarded. And even, like in military, anything you will get promoted because you are the best. But like, not that far. That's what brevet uh, promotion is: combat battlefield, where your ability exceeds your rank, and you are placed in higher regard because of your battlefield prowess and your. Ability to have other men or soldiers follow you. Okay, I guess one of these is just because we're not going to be able to ask it on any of the other movies or the other sequels in the next couple of weeks. I think this is going to be a very easy answer. Do you prefer the Burton tone or the Nolan tone in your Batman films? I think we're all universally going to say Nolan. I hate anything to do with Tim Burton, so... Yeah, it's bad enough I have to watch Nightmare Before Christmas. Ew, why? Because that's our Christmas film this year. Ew. Yeah. There are a lot of people that love that movie. I know people do, but Tim Burton is crazy. Yes, there's a lot of people who like putting ketchup on steak. <laughs> okay. I just, nothing with Tim Burton. I don't like him at all. And his ex-wife is just as crazy, but she's at least talented. Remaining questions for either of you? No, I don't have anything. Well, thank you, Allison, for being back. This is your fourth time on the show. You have one more to earn your hat. Coming up in a few weeks. I guess so, if uh, you have to substitute on one where we were going to have Keith, but uh, all right. Well, you were actually originally scheduled to have both of us. Then for some reason you got just him, and now he's going to be gone on vacation, so it'll be me. Okay. I... Would have never scheduled you both. No, I did. I said Keith and I could do it together, and then you said okay, and then you just put him down. I likely would not have scheduled a four-person podcast, and I know that full well saying that next week is going to be a four-person podcast. Uh, Well, I think it would have been funny to have Keith and I together on something, because, you know, we're very... Yeah, that might be at some (laughs) point, but not Casablanca, which Dad holds a special place for, and... uh, I don't I don't think he wants it trampled on. Yes, next week with four, I may end up being Harpo and just have a uh, bike horn that I, you know, as the three of them are going on and on about comic book movies, I may just in order to get a word in. I think you'll be fine. We can we can handle this, but we haven't done a four person podcast since the My Fair Lady debacle. That was five people. I know, and I vowed after that to never do more than three again, because the editing was so hard for that. Yeah, that was interesting, to say the least. But uh, thank you again, and I think that'll do it for us this week. Thank you for listening. You either die a hero, or you live long enough to see yourself become the villain. Next week, we are discussing one of my three favorite films, The Dark Knight from 2008, written and directed by Christopher Nolan, 
co-written by Jonathan Nolan, scored by Hans Zimmer and James Newton Howard, starring Christian Bale, Heath Ledger, Michael Caine, Aaron Eckhart, Maggie Gyllenhaal, Gary Oldman, and Morgan Freeman. You won't want to miss that one, so watch ahead of the show by searching the Real Good app to find where it's streaming for you. That's R-E-E-L-G-O-O-D. Please like, follow, rate, and review, or whatever on whichever platform you have so that more can join in on our fun. You can also email the show at thenewronnyduncanstudios.com or sign up for our newsletter, find our new Facebook page under Greatest Movie of All Time Podcast, or find us on Instagram, Twitter, or TikTok at the handle at Podcast. The Greatest Movie of All Time is a production of Ronnie Duncan Studios. Our show is mixed, edited, and written by Thomas Duncan. Our music is thanks to Purple Planet Music. Our technical provider and distributor is Captivate FM. 